Now I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. Matthew, chapter 8, is where I'd like to direct your attention. We're going to read the first 17 verses of this chapter. While you're turning there, let me mention three things. First of all, someday we do hope to pass the communion elements again. <laughs> uh, someday we'll be able to do that. We're not, we, uh, it's, it seems like for in perpetuity, we were going to continue to collect the offering in a box, but at some point in time, we'll collect, uh, we'll pass the uh, elements with a tray. That will be good. And then uh, the second thing I want to mention to you is on Thursday, October 1st, it was uh, Pastor Scott's 10th anniversary as one of our pastors at Grace. And uh, we are grateful to God for his 10 years of faithful service in our congregation. And the third thing that I want to do before we read scripture is um, Everly Whitehill came a little bit earlier than expected. You saw she was connected to some um, uh, equipment. So uh, let's pray for Tom and Bree and Everly this morning. Shall we do that for just a moment? Father, we come before you. You have commanded us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And it is our privilege to rejoice before you at the good gift of Everly Whitehill. We thank you for uh, knitting her together in her mother's womb. We pray, Lord, as uh, she is in the ICU, that you would um, bring comfort and courage to Tom and Bree, that you would give them patience and contentment while they are waiting for their daughter to grow and to become stable enough to be released and to go home. Lord, um, care for this little girl. Uh, we know that you, her creator, have um, a greater love and joy in her as one of your image bearers than, than any of us do. So we appeal to you knowing that you are not stingy uh, and knowing that you are not begrudging our requests, but asking you to show mercy to this child. Be with Hayden, her older brother, as he struggles, no doubt, with the separation that this hospitalization mandates from his parents. Um, Lord, uh, bring her to health soon so that she can go home. And cause Tom and Bree to be filled with joy even as they wait upon you. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Follow along in the scriptures as I read. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Or your translation might say, I will come and heal him. It's either a question or a statement. We'll talk about which one it might be in time. Verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed 
and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it was would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him to serve him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Of all of the hundreds of books that I read to my children, one of them that stands out is The New Bear at School by Carrie Weston. Some of you might recognize this book. Maybe you have read it yourself. The New Bear at School is about Boris's first day in Miss Cluck's class. At the beginning of the day, Miss Cluck said to her students, a few mice, a mole, uh, a rabbit, a fox, said, Today, there's a new student coming, and he is a bear. And all the students immediately thought about their teddy bears at home and how soft and cuddly and little and squishy they are. And then Boris walked through the door. Humongous Boris. And the children were frightened. Boris was shy, but he wanted to make friends. So when it came time for journaling, he drew a picture of the mice, and he showed it to them. And he smiled big, but he forgot that when he smiles, his frightening teeth show. And his classmates were even more scared of Boris. When it came time for hide-and-go-seek at recess, they went outside, and Boris was too big to hide in any of the normal places. So he got to be it. He counted to ten, and then he turned around and said, I'm coming to get you. But he forgot that he's a bear, and he has a booming voice, so it sounded like, I'm coming to get you. And the children cried. And then at lunchtime, they all sat on a bench, except there was no room for Boris, and nobody moved. And Boris ate all by himself. What a very sad beginning to a story. But it's one that all of us can understand, because all of us know what it's like to, at any time, be an outsider. Someone who doesn't feel like they belong or they fit in. Some of you, that maybe happened in a classroom. You walked into a class once and you didn't know anybody in the room and you thought to yourself, is there somebody in here who's going to be my friend? Who's going to be my friend in this room? Some of you experienced this sense of being an outsider after you got married. On your wedding day, your mother-in-law said, I haven't lost a son, I've gained a daughter and hugged you. And then you went to Christmas at her house for the first time. Well, you've been there before, but you were a guest before, and now you're family, and you got the whole experience. You sat down with your new family, and you want to talk about Van Gogh and Monet, and they want to talk about the Kardashians. Or, huh, all they talk about is politics in this family. The whole meal, they talk about politics, and, and you know... You, you, you know the Electoral College is important, but you don't know anybody who graduated from it, so you're not quite sure what to do and how to talk. And then during dinner, they also talk about how they're going to divide into teams for the Trivial Pursuit game they're going to play at the end. Who plays Trivial Pursuit anymore? 
Let's bring back the Cold War, too, shall we? I mean, who plays that game? They're all excited. And now, since you're married, they feel free to use their native family language, which is insulting and put-downs. That's how they show love. And here you are. A word of kindness would die of loneliness in your brother-in-law's mouth. And here you are, Christmas Day. This is Christmas for the next 50 years. Some of you felt out like an outsider at church, right? Sometimes that happens. You walk into a church and you think, how do all these people know the Bible so well? And why are their lives all together? My life isn't together like these people's lives. But what, what do they know that I don't? Well, they know a lot about the Bible. I had a friend who um, graduated from uh, a state school in Arkansas. And at, when he was at college, he and his uh, fiance became his wife, heard the gospel through Campus Crusade, became followers of Jesus, and decided to go to seminary. He wanted to do, uh, be involved in full-time ministry, so they went to seminary. And when they got there, they were taken aback by how much they didn't know. In their first Old Testament class, the professor started to talk about the Bible character known as Gomer, which made them laugh hard. Is this Mayberry or the Bible? Gomer? Come on, Gomer. And then when they found out that Gomer was a girl, they thought that was even more hilarious. But nobody around them was laughing. It's like they knew this. And, and, and my friend, they, they didn't. They just wait till they get to the book of Acts and hear about Dorcas. That's going to be a great moment, right? Everybody at some point in time feels like an outsider. And here is Jesus' encounter with three outsiders. One of them is an outsider because of his disease. One of them is an outsider because of his ethnicity. And one of them is an outsider because of her gender. And this is a passage that tells us how outsiders become insiders. In fact, that's one of the things I want to show you in the text. Three things I want you to see in this text. We're going to talk, first of all, about who, outs who the outsiders were. And then we're going to talk about what happened to the outsiders. And then third, I want to talk about how outsiders become insiders. That's important because all of us at some point in time were outsiders in the church. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are no native citizens. We've all been brought in from a far country. How does that happen? You should know that because we're now commissioned by the Lord Jesus to go find more outsiders and bring them in. It's our task. Now, before we talk about that, though, those three things, first of all, I want to talk for just a minute about this section of Matthew as a whole that we're in. We're walking our way systematically through the book of Matthew, and you should recognize that we are in a distinct unit that starts in Matthew 4.23 and ends in Matthew 9.35. The reason we know this is a distinct unit is because a Matthew bookends the passages, uh, these, these chapters, with very similar verses. So, for example, look at Matthew 4.35. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. All right, keep that in mind. That's Matthew 4.23. Now Matthew 9.35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease. Disease and sickness. You notice the similarities between those two verses? Matthew uses them to set this section off to highlight what Jesus does. He teaches and he heals. He teaches and he heals. We've just been through a major section of teaching. We've just been through the Sermon on the Mount where here's a summary of Jesus, as it were, stump speech. 
And now in chapters 8 and 9, we're going to look at some healing miracles. In fact, there's 10 miracles uh, divided into nine stories. And those nine stories appear in groups. So there's three. We just read the first three. Then there's a second set of three. And then a third set of three plus one. And in between those sets of threes, there's a sentence or two about discipleship, about what it means to follow Jesus. Notice here, Matthew did not just pick things randomly and put them down, or find things randomly and put them down. Matthew has a very organized book. He has an argument to make. He wants you to know chiefly who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And this is the strategy that we're following in this section. And we're going to look at these first three healing stories, accounts. Let's begin with who the outsiders were. Who the outsiders were, and there's three of them. We start with a man with leprosy. A man with leprosy. We don't know his name. None of these characters are named. None of these people are named in the text. Uh, but uh, all we know about his affliction, he has leprosy. Now, leprosy in the ancient world, the Greek word translated leprosy here, describes a broad range of diseases. We're most familiar in our culture, if you talk about leprosy, you're actually talking about something called Hansen's disease, which is an anti, uh, sorry, a bacterial infection that is... A, a, a rotten, horrible disease to get. It affects your nerves. It affects your skin your, and your extremities. It's a wasting disease where your extremities shrivel and uh, in some cases uh, be, they become misshapen and can fall off. It's a terrible disease. It's, um, uh, leprosy is an isolating disease too because it's so contagious. If you in this culture got leprosy, you had to leave your home. You had to leave your family lest you give them leprosy. It was isolating from your family, from your friends. It was isolating from God too because if you had leprosy, you fell into the category of being unclean. Unclean according to the Old Testament law. You were not allowed to go close to God for worship. Just think about how this would work. Maybe in, in Jesus' day, uh, the center of worship was the temple in Jerusalem that was God's house. And the temple in Jerusalem was a restricted area. Only certain people could go inside the temple. And only certain people on a special day, the high priest could go into the holiest place, God's inner sanctum. But there was that building, and around that building, that temple, that house, were several walls that would separate people out. And depending on your status, it determined how closely you could get to the house, to the temple. If you had leprosy, you couldn't even go in the city. You, you could see it from a distance, but you couldn't go anywhere near the city or the temple. You were an outsider. You are separated from, abandoned by your family, your friends, and even, as it were, God. No cure, total isolation, a fatal disease. Some of you feel this isolation. Some of you, you read this and you think about this man and you understand some of the pain that he must be experiencing. Not just the physical pain, but the social isolation as well. Unclean, unclean, he's unclean. 
Now, the second outsider is a man called the centurion, a centurion, an officer in the Roman army. He's a centurion, so under his command, he has 100 men. A century is 100 years. A centurion is uh, a man who is, uh, leads 100 soldiers. He's not a Jew. Probably based on uh, the... Um, uh, records that we have of the day, he was probably not Roman either. He was probably a Syrian, a Syrian who was in the Roman uh, army, and he's not Jewish, so he's alienated from God too. He's an outsider too. He can at least go into the city of Jerusalem. The leper can't go into the city, but he can at least go into the city, this man. But there would be a wall around the, uh, around the temple that would tell him, don't go any farther. In fact, there's a plaque on this wall. We found it. It says... Any non-Jew who goes beyond this point will have only himself to blame for his ensuing death. So he's on the outside too. And he, he comes, though, with this appeal to Jesus uh, for his servant. Your translation in verse 6 might say son. With the parallel in Luke, we're pretty sure that he's talking about one of his slaves, one of his servants. But it's one that he cares for deeply. And he comes to Jesus to appeal for him. My servant is home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. That's his appeal. He seems to know about his outsider status. In verse 7, Jesus seems to remind him of it. You want me to come to your house? I think it's a question. You want me to come to your house? And the centurion... No, 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 I don't deserve to have you come. I do not deserve to have you come. On the one hand, he might be thinking, Jesus is a faithful Jew. If he walks into a non-Jew's house, a Gentile's house, just that act would make him spiritually unclean. So maybe the, the centurion is thinking, no, you'll, you'll be unclean if you come to my house. Or maybe he just, he just feels unworthy in light of who Jesus is. Here's this very powerful man in the Roman army with a lot of authority and he sees Jesus of being higher status than he is. You, you are greater than I am. I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. Now, this is a little bit foreign to us in our culture. We don't have titles. We don't have strict class divisions in our culture. Our greatest stories, the stories we love the most, are about uh, rags to riches stories, people who are poor or uh, uh, forgotten or uh, left out, and then they rise and become preeminent and powerful and influential. Those are our favorite stories. So we don't have this idea of stratification like this. But this Roman centurion, he did not grow up in the United States, and he knows, he knows what place he falls in society. And he says of the Lord Jesus, though I'm an important Roman soldier, officer, you, you surpass me so much so, I'm not even worthy to have you in my house. He's a man with a lot of power who's watching someone he cares for deeply suffer and there's nothing he can do about it. You should understand what this man is like. Have you ever prayed for a friend who's been sick or a family member and you've come before the Lord and said, please, please, please help my ailing brother, my ailing child. 
Now, the third outsider in this passage would be a Jew. She's Peter's mother-in-law, the apostle Peter's mother-in-law. And Jesus comes into her house, into their house, and, P- and, and she's lying down with a debilitating fever. She's an outsider too. The leper can't even go into the city uh, where the temple is. The centurion at least can go in the city, but there'd be a wall that would separate him. The woman, this Jewish woman, could go closer, the centurion, but she still is outside. And, well, she's sick and she's old. In this culture, they do better at this than in our culture. But what value to society does a sick old woman have? She's an outsider. Here's Jesus with the outsiders. The first miracle stories that Matthew highlights in the gospel have Jesus reaching out to these people that would not be welcome in the highest orders of Jewish society. You would not look to this group of people for leadership. You would not look to them to be models of righteousness or of faith. But here Jesus is with them. That's often how we think about Jesus. That's what he does. He hangs out with the outcasts. But I wonder how much of that is influenced by, again, our American way of thinking and and how we think about status and who's got it and who doesn't. This is shocking and scandalous that Jesus would be with these people, these outsiders. Let's talk about what happened to them. We're going to skip ahead and talk about the end of each of their stories. Verse 3 says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, and he was cleansed, verse 3 says. That's a spiritual and a physical word. And Jesus tells him to go to the priest in obedience to the law. This is what you were supposed to do. Moses commanded in in the book of Leviticus, if you have a skin disease and it it passes, go show yourself to the priest, and uh, he will certify that you're clean, and you'll make a sacrifice. Now, why did he say don't tell anyone? Jesus says this a few times in the Gospel of Matthew. Some people refer to it as the messianic secret. Kind of silly. Probably, now there's different reasons why Jesus would tell someone, don't tell anybody. Probably what's happening here is Jesus says, look, you've got a job to do. You're healed. Go to the priest. Go right now. Don't get distracted. Don't go home and tell your mother first. Go to the priest and obey. And your gift, your sacrifice, and the certification by the priest will serve as a testimony to them. A testimony of what to whom? Who's the them in this passage? And what is the testimony about? I think it's a testimony to the priests. And the testimony is that Jesus has healed this man. There's a man. Here's the news. There's a guy. His name is Jesus. And he can heal lepers. One of the things that Matthew does is he records for us these miracles in part to show to us and to teach people that Jesus is the Messiah. That is, he's the one that the Old Testament promised was coming. He's the one who would come and represent God and bring restoration to the nation of Israel, and bring healing and health and wholeness. He's God's special servant. And the miracles in the Gospel of Matthew uh, and in Jesus' life testify to his status as the Messiah. We know this because of a conversation Jesus had with some servants of John the Baptist in Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, 
uh, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist had been arrested, and he had questions about who Jesus was. And he sent servants to talk to him. Are you really the Messiah? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Lepers are being healed, John. Here's the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. The leper is healed. He goes home. He can re-enter society. He can worship God. That's amazing. It's stunning what Jesus says about the centurion. He commends his faith in verse 10. And then look at verse 11 again. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice this. The outsiders become insiders and the insiders become outsiders. That's what Jesus is saying here. He pictures eternity as a great feast. It's a great feast. And who's there? Of course, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are there. Of course, they're there. And you know what else? who else is there? This centurion is there. And he's not there waiting on the tables. He's not there begging for bread. He's at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as if he's an equal with them. That's amazing. And, and the, the subjects of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom, the ones who should be inside, are not inside. They're outside. They can hear the music of the party. They can smell the food of the party. They can, they can uh, see the guests through the windows and the lights in the windows, but they're on the outside in the dark where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember one of the themes that we're tracing through the Gospel of Matthew is all nations Jesus has all authority over all nations. He is worthy of all allegiance, and he's always with us. Here is a part of the passage where we see this all nations emphasized. Matthew has made the point that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He has the right pedigree. He has uh, the right relationship to the law of Moses. He has the power. He is the Jewish Messiah, no doubt about that. But his own people are going to reject him with terrible consequences, and people who are you wouldn't expect to be there, many from the east and west are going to come and be inside the kingdom of heaven. Outside is dark. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. These verbs, weeping and gnashing of teeth, have to do with both pain and anger. The prevailing image in the Bible of hell, and Jesus spoke about hell a lot, is that it is for those who have rejected him, who will not believe in him. But it's a place not filled with regret and remorse. It's not, there's not going to be people in hell sorry. There will be people who are in hell who are angry. Who does God think he is to send me to this place and to make me suffer like this? He doesn't deserve to have that much authority. Frederick Bruner says that Jesus talks about hell not to scare people who think 
they are who are on the outside so they come in he talks about hell this much to scare the people who think they're insiders but aren't take this warning jesus says and the centurion goes home with this assurance and with this promise of, of healing. Now, his, the, the account of the mother-in-law is shorter. Peter, Peter's mother-in-law, it's a shorter account. She gets up from her bed of illness, and she waits on him. She serves him. That's the Greek word there uh, underneath this English is the word from which we get our, our word deacon, a diakonos. She's a servant. It's one of the New Testament's most uh, common uh, word for serving. Remember Matthew's strategy. Who is Jesus? How should we respond to him? How shall we respond to Jesus, the great miracle worker? We, like Peter's mother-in-law, should serve him. She's a model disciple in this regard. She gets up and, and serves the Lord Jesus. That's what happened. What I'm interested now, as we finish, is how did the outsiders become insiders? How did it happen? What was the process, the transformation? There's two ways to describe it. First, we could describe this transformation this way, by faith, by faith. How do outsiders become insiders? By faith. This is most clear with the leper and with the centurion. Um, the leper has this sentence that he lays before Jesus that gives us this basic definition of what faith is. I didn't put this on the screen. I'll just tell you about it. Um, how, what, how do we understand faith is? Well, faith means three things. First, acknowledging Jesus' supremacy. Acknowledging Jesus' supremacy. He says, he comes, he kneels before him, he says, Lord, and he says, you can make me clean. I know what you can do. You can do this. You're supreme. Second, submitting to Jesus' will. Submitting to Jesus' will. If you are willing... You can do this. If you're willing to do this. The Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Father, if, if not my will but yours be done. Right? Submitting to, to Jesus' will. Third, confessing your need. Confessing your need. You can make me clean. You can make me clean. I am not clean, but you can make me clean. This basic description of what faith is, acknowledging Jesus' supremacy, submitting to his will, confessing your need. The centurion's faith amazes Jesus. I have not seen faith like this in anyone in Israel, he says. Great faith. The centurion knows how authority works. And again, there's this, um, there, and he's willing to trust Jesus' authority. Then there's this, again, this question. You want me to come and heal him? You want me to come and do that? Why does Jesus put that question there? Alistair Roberts says that it, it fits in with many of the miracle stories. In many miracle stories in the Bible, there is some sort of obstacle or some sort of setback. So when four guys are carrying their paralytic friend to be healed by Jesus, they're taking him to Jesus, and they get there, and there's crowds so many crowds, they can't get to Jesus. What are we going to do? Here's an obstacle. Or a man, and we'll read this in a few weeks, Lord willing, a man comes to Jesus for healing for his sick daughter, and she dies. That is quite the setback. <laughs> so these obstacles. What does faith do in the midst of obstacles? It overcomes. It perseveres. Faith perseveres. 
It continues to pray. If your faith doesn't persevere, it's not faith, it's just a wish. Now, there's no faith mentioned in this miracle with the mother-in-law, with Peter's mother-in-law. This is just, Jesus does this unsolicited kindness, just this, this unsought, unrequested miracle, which isn't that just like what Jesus would do? Don't we come to expect unexpected blessings from him? Which actually leads me to my second point about how the outsiders become insiders through Jesus. Through Jesus. Now, I want to talk about the role of touch in this story, in these three accounts. In the second account, Jesus heals from a distance. Uh, this is, um, he, he does this a couple times. It is an expression of the centurion's faith that he, is, that he believes Jesus can do this. Uh, the, it happens by distance, but it is that Jesus reaches out and touches these people. Verse 3, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Verse 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her. This is a good time to talk about touching. There's no touching allowed. We're in the midst of a pandemic. Don't touch anyone, right? And what Jesus is doing here risks spiritual contamination. Leviticus 5 says that you should not reach out and touch people with skin diseases like leprosy because if you do, their uncleanness, well, two things, you might catch their disease and their uncleanness will pass to you. You'll become spiritually contaminated. Now, here's a debate, something you can argue about over lunch if you want to. What happened to Jesus when he touched the leper? Did he become unclean or not? Normally, you would expect that he would, but if the uncleanness is related to the the disease, if when Jesus touches him, the disease is healed, what happens to the cleanness, uncleanness? Did the disease and the, if the disease didn't pass from the leper to Jesus, but healing passed from Jesus to the leper, did uncleanness pass from the leper to Jesus or did wholeness pass from Jesus to the leper? Hmm. Jesus reaches out and touches Peter's mother-in-law in some Jewish traditions because Jesus is not related to this woman. He is risking spiritual contamination by reaching out and touching her. This is a mark of Jesus' compassion, I think. Think about it. The leper, when is the last time someone touched the leper in compassion? When in kindness is the last time someone reached out and touched him? Some of you know Marjorie York. Marjorie York is the oldest member of our church. She's 99 years old, and she lives at the Glen at Willow Valley. She hasn't been able to attend for a number of years um, uh, due to her declining health. But I I visit her every now and then. I haven't been able to visit her for several months. Uh, But uh, when I go visit, I think about Marjorie's plight there. She has no local family at all. Uh, So um, she has a couple friends, but there she is. Marjorie is touched all day long because of her physical condition. She needs help getting out of bed. She needs help going to the bathroom. She needs help bathing. She needs help getting dressed. She needs a lot of help. There are aides who care for her well, and they touch her all the time. But when I see her, I think to myself, I wonder if anybody with affection touches Marjorie, hugs her, holds her hand. Uh, I'm not a hugger. 
and Marjorie is, is frail, and she's a tiny, frail little woman. And when I leave, I, I shake her hand, and she reaches out to me, and I, I take my, her hand in both of my hands, and I try to pour all of the love that I possibly can into her hand. There's this affection this, that, that she is deprived of in the condition in which she's in. Just like this leper, and the Lord Jesus reaches out and touches him. I know that there are some of you in this room who have experienced unwanted touch in your life. Understand that, and this passage may be difficult for you to think about in these terms. This is the Lord Jesus coming, though, to heal and to restore and to renew. The Lord Jesus is probably a hugger. And in that great day when we see him face to face, how is he going to embrace his children? Welcome, welcome in. Do you know, do you know that uh, they've done studies of this? They've watched game film. NBA team members, uh, NBA teams where there's a lot of touching in the team, uh, high fives, uh, half hugs, huddles, a lot of touching. NBA teams that touch one another more often uh, score more points in a game than NBA teams that don't touch each other often. Matthew goes further when this, he's talking about the compassion of Jesus. Matthew plugs this back, this healing, into Isaiah 53, this passage that Wayne read a little bit ago, where Jesus, for our sake, took to himself our sin and our sorrows. It's prophesied in Isaiah 53. It's going to happen at the end of Matthew. And, and Matthew is saying, look, this physical healing that Jesus is doing is a sign and symbol and a pointer to the ultimate spiritual healing that the Lord Jesus will render for us. On the cross, the Lord Jesus is going to become unclean for us so that we can become clean. He's going to become stained so that we might be made pure. And Matthew's reminded these miracles are all pointers in that direction. Have you ever heard the expression that a true friend doubles your joy and divides your sorrows? It's a good expression. Speaks to the fact that when you have, when you're burdened by something, if you have a friend that you can sit down and talk to them about it, if you can talk to somebody about it and share this burden, you, it, it lightens the load, doesn't it? To be able to speak the, the trouble that I'm having. I know someone, this is one of the reasons that counseling works, whether or not your counselor is skilled, just to, to, to share, to speak this trouble that you have. It, it, it divides your sorrows. I know one therapist who said what happens all day long is that uh, her patients come and the, they leave after sharing their sorrows a little lighter and I remain in the room a lot heavier. And the Lord Jesus has taken to himself our sorrows, our burdens, and he died on the cross and rose again. And we're waiting for the day when what Matthew 8 here describes, this full healing, this full fruit of the cross work of Jesus. We're waiting for that day for that to be fulfilled. But in the meantime, here's our path. We who are outsiders, we who were outsiders, invite other outsiders to come. And how do we invite them to come? We invite them to come through Jesus by faith. Turn and trust in him. Now, Boris the bear. What happened to Boris the bear? 
Well, at the end of the day, at the end of the school day, Boris's classmates walk home, and of course they leave Boris behind, but he lumbers after. And his classmates turn a corner, and out from behind a tree jump a pack of rats. They're the bullies of the school, and they're mean and nasty. Boris does not know this, though. He's new at the school. He just sees his friends meeting other people, and he thinks, hey, maybe there's the rats. Maybe I can be friends with them. So Boris comes up behind his classmates, and he looks at the rats, and he gives them his biggest smile, that toothy, horrible smile. And the rats see those fierce teeth, and they run away in terror. And Boris's classmates turn around and say, you know, Boris, you are a big, hairy, scary bear. But you know, if a big, hairy, scary bear is on your side, it's not too bad to have a friend who's a big, hairy, scary bear. Morris, uh, Boris becomes an insider because of what he brings to the table. Sharp teeth, big claws. You do not become an insider in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what you bring to the table You become an insider in the church of Jesus Christ because of what he has done. As nice a story as Boris is, that one's an even better story. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for uh, recounting to us through the Apostle Matthew this account of what the Lord Jesus has done. Lord, we are grateful to you for it because we all, at some point in time, feel like outsiders in this world, that we don't belong. And certainly, if we read the Bible, we know that we, we, we don't belong at your table because of our sin and our rebellion against you. But we are grateful to you for the Lord Jesus and his compassion and his mercy. Oh, Lord, because we're his followers, we pray that you, too, would cultivate this same compassion in us, that we would be faithful in the calling we have received to to tell other outsiders the news so that they might become insiders. Remind us that we're at the table because of the Lord Jesus and the great work he has done, he who bore our sin and our shame. Thank you, Lord Jesus. May we make much of you in how we speak to our family members and our friends this week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.